the DEA was doing all of these unlawful things and there was nobody there to say, hey, this is wrong. And there were no lawyers willing to sue them. There were no companies willing to sue them, even though everyone knew that this was wrong. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to an episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Matt Zorn, partner at Yetter Coleman. Matt, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? How are you guys? Um, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Excited to talk to Matt. Excited to talk cannabis and psychedelics and, and the law and federal government and everything. How are you doing, Brian? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, I'm excited to talk about specifically the federal government, some of their, uh, let's call it, their, they're not their best behaviors, and then ask Matt some questions about you know what we can do better collectively. But I guess before we get started, Matt, it's really important. We got a little East Coast, West Coast battle. Where would you position yourself? <laughs> For doing an East Coast, West Coast battle, I got to position myself East Coast. I was born and raised in uh, D.C., spent spent seven years in New York City. Um, so um, I've never spent any time on the West Coast. And uh, I like Seattle. So it's pretty good. California, there are parts I like. But I got East Coast blood flowing through me. But but between, but, yeah, I'd rather actually be in Texas if you were, if you were to ask me. That's fine. Of course, Texas is its own place. But it, it's good to have a, a strong legal uh, representation here on the East Coast for us, Kellen. So we're stacking our roster. So Matt, I guess before we get started, for our listeners, I'm feeling about you. Can you give a little background about yourself and then how you got into the highly regulatory space? Yeah, so I I went to law school and up in New York at Columbia. And then uh, during law school, I took a class on drugs law and policy. I was particularly interested in that. And this is back in 2010 and 2011. And I kind of dug even deeper than the curriculum like took me and just read all the cases and found it fascinating and i guess realized that there was no way to become a lawyer um in that space really at that point in time or even if there were jobs i had a lot of student debt and that wasn't going to pay off my student debt so i went and became a, a you know i worked for a big law firm and learned how to become a a law firm for big corporations, and it, it was—it's—it's it's fantastic training. I learned how to become a, a good, got the basic skills, and then I um, left for Marshall, Texas, and started clerking for a judge, uh, Rodney Gilstrap, and he had the busiest patent docket in the entire country. So I'm a patent litigator. That's kind of my bread and butter. Um, and then after that, I decided I wanted to stay in Texas. And I started work down here at Yetter Coleman doing, again, IP litigation. And even to this day, I, I do patent litigation. I do commercial litigation as well, contract litigation, high stakes and whatnot. But the reason I'm in this quote-unquote space, whether it's cannabis or psychedelics, I'll just say controlled substances, is in 2019, so four years ago, I sat through a presentation by a researcher named Dr. Sue Sisley, where she was talking about how the Department of Justice Drug Enforcement Administration was uh, blocking her application to grow cannabis for research. And I was about a sixth, seventh year lawyer at that point. And I thought I knew just enough there where I could help her. And afterwards, I kind of went up to her and said, look, I'll represent you pro bono if you want to file a lawsuit. And less than a month later, we filed a lawsuit. And about a month after that, the DEA kind of caved. And then everything has kind of grown out of that sort of first pro bono lawsuit. Done a lot of other pro bono work. And I still do pro bono work in the space. Currently representing right now a DEA special agent who was fired for uh, using CBD oil. So, you know, I'm I'm still got a pro bono practice, but I've also got I, I also take on paid clients too who have issues relating to controlled substances, uh, whether it's counseling or litigation or whatnot. So I've managed to build a practice, but again, I'm still, I still do a lot of IP commercial. So it's kind of like got the weird, maybe I have one of the weirdest practices here at the firm, but it's, it's one I really like. So let's stay with Dr. Sicily, right? In those early conversations, yeah. was there something that triggered you that said, Hey, like there's something here. We need to fight back against like bigger organizations like the DEA, like take us through that thought process. So again, when I was listening to Dr. Sicily's problem, I wasn't acutely aware of for her specific problem. However, sort of eight or eight years prior to that, I had studied this and I was like, well, this is just a mess. 
So I broadly knew that this was a mess. And, and I don't mean that from a war on drugs or like racism standpoint, although certainly that that's true. I meant it more of just like the legal sort of frameworks were just in, a, in chaos and just like what DEA was doing was unlawful. Um, now, Dr. Sisley introduced me to a very specific problem, but what that also sort of opened my eyes to was that there was also a almost a bigger problem, which was the DEA was doing all of these unlawful things, and there was nobody there to say, hey, this is wrong. And there were no lawyers willing to sue them. There were no companies willing to sue them, even though everyone knew that this was wrong. And so that was a, um, it, it's, it's this space is, is a very different one from like other regulated spaces. If the EPA steps on the energy industry, the energy industry claps back with high paid lawyers and says, you know, this is unlawful. And then you go to court and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But that type of behavior creates this, um, creates a dynamic where like the regulator isn't just stomping all over the regulated. There's their boundaries, right? You do not have that in this controlled substances space. Nobody wants to really, and, and, and I'm sure we'll get to the cannabis industry, but you know, rather than sort of develop healthy boundaries, people have just developed workarounds and then workarounds to the workarounds. And it's like basically trying to like circumvent these provisions or, you know, the analogy I like to use is like the Controlled Substances Act and like drug policy and drug law and regulations like a swamp. I mean, and rather than quote unquote drain the swamp, we've decided to build a castle on top of that swamp. And like, you know, a little wonder that this castle keeps sinking like every year and eventually is going to be completely underground because nobody, nobody's there to like challenge these unlawful regulations or the structure. So that's kind of what I noticed. That was the bigger thing I noticed when I took this case was, holy crap, like why, you know, there, there were people that would, there are cases where people sued, but it would be like not powerful lobbies, not what I would call like really sympathetic plaintiffs or credible plaintiffs or the skill set you need to know is like administrative law. And that's the other thing, right? State level legalization is like a specialty. And a lot of folks other than me have great expertise on like state level law. But like the federal stuff is like just administrative procedure I saw. And the, the, the types of person who have expertise in one are not the same as the other. So that's kind of what I was noticing. And then that, like I said, so Dr. Sisley, I, I was litigating for her for like two years, but some of these other cases, right, are kind of in the same vein. Of, they're about like federal regulatory challenges, institutional challenges and whatnot. So before I think we dive into all of these cases and a lot of the other work that you've done in this space, could you just give our audience just a broad overview of the DEA, the FDA, and the other organizations that are responsible for kind of regulating the controlled substance space. And then, then we can dive into all of these different aspects. Yeah, I mean, I would say there's a big three today. So everyone knows DEA, and that's actually the smallest of the three, interestingly, in cannabis because of sort of the non-prosecution posture of the federal government over the past few years. The DEA, it still does some things in cannabis, but it, it's not actively... It used to, you know, well, I guess it still burns crops, but like it, it, the DEA used to be like play a bigger force. And I think what you're seeing now is like DEA, that a few of these letters are coming out about Delta 8, like analogs or whatever. So there's the DEA, and that's essentially the criminal law enforcement runs the Controlled Substances Act with most other things, you know, requires licensure to study. They're the ones who process Schedule 1 applications. So that's the DEA. The FDA shares responsibilities with DEA over administrating the schedules and the Controlled Substances Act um, because it's responsible for the medical and scientific aspects of it. And then it also is responsible for approving drugs for use in interstate commerce. And of course, the way the FDA comes into this is a lot of CBD crackdowns are, are not based on the Controlled Substances Act. CBD is not a controlled substance anymore, but you still can't marketed as a drug because of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. So it's illegal to introduce a drug or substance into interstate commerce and advertise it as a drug without FDA approval. Um, so so the FDA has got its own kind of enforcement regime. It's not sort of as criminal as the Controlled Substances Act, but it, it's it's got its own sort of fiefdom. And then the third agency is the IRS. 
And it's probably the most important of the three. And it's one that a lot of people don't mention. And there, look, there are other agencies that, like, you know, the, the Patent and Trademark Office, like, processes cannabis trademarks. I mean, we, I could do a laundry list of eight federal agencies responsible for regulation. But the reason I talk about the big three is these are the three that I believe have the most impact on sort of the legalization, not legalization. And the reason the IRS is because of 280E, which is there's a lot you can say about 280E, but it has an enormous impact on the cannabis industry. And I expect will have an enormous impact on this sort of state level legalization movement, which is following the footsteps of cannabis. You know, everyone knows what the IRS does. It, it does taxes, but, you know, specifically your, the 280E um, penalty is, is assessed by the IRS, or it's not really a penalty so much as it prevents deduction. So those are with the, th- I would say, the three biggest agencies in the cannabis and psychedelic space. So you have DEA, which is like criminal in charge of the schedules, FDA, which is in charge of new drugs and approving new drugs and also has its own kind of role with the CSA. And then you have the IRS, which does the the taxes. So let's now take it back to it with the DEA. You're there with Dr. Sisley. You, you went up to her. You realized that there was nobody kind of checking them. Before you kind of made that move and decided to sue them, did you speak internally with your team and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking? And if so, was there anyone saying, hey, Matt, like that's someone else's fight? Yeah, I mean, I certainly ran it by the firm. At that time, I was an associate. And yeah, I ran it, I ran it through the firm and I wrote up a memo. And but I mean, look, Dr. Sisley, one, she was a researcher, right? So I wasn't taking on a representation for the cannabis industry. Second, the type of research she was doing was for veterans with PTSD. And third, I said, look, she's got a legitimate claim. This is not a phony grievance. Um, And I think that my firm is of the position that we want worthy clients with worthy causes and meritorious claims. And so I just ticked it off. And there was never any hesitation from my firm, which um, is, you know, we, we, we do a lot of pro bono work. We spent over a decade now trying to reform the Texas foster care system. And it's not a case I, it's, you know, a case a lot of people at this firm work on and it's a team effort and it's very hard. So, you know, one thing that we pride ourselves in is, you know, we like challenges. Like we don't want to take easy cases. Like we want hard cases and that, that that's on the pro bono side. And it's on you know, our, our clients trust us with bet the business type cases. and. You know, we an extraordinary challenge is the type of thing that we're looking for. So, I our, the firm didn't hesitate when I presented this uh, to them in the way I presented it, and it's been very supportive of all the efforts I have been undertaking and, and doing. So, from a broad stroke perspective, back in 2019, the only location you could acquire cannabis federally for research purposes was from the University of Mississippi, correct? Yeah. Now there's, what, seven additional licenses that have been issued. Is this a, probably a direct result from some of this work that you guys have done? Yeah, absolutely. It is a complete, it is a direct line to what we did. I mean, after the D, like, it, we, the, the process moved. Um, and, and we did, we filed another lawsuit where we, um, we got the, uh, we got a secret memo out of the Office of Legal Counsel, which, um, which explained why the program had stalled out, we filed a third lawsuit, which we never ended up winning. But but our you know our client, Dr. Sicily and Scottsdale Research Institute, ended up getting a license. Um, and so, like you said, so did other folks. And that's because the program was pushed along. I believe, well, almost certainly was by the litigation. I mean, it's it's there's no coincidence that the that the program started moving as soon as we started filing lawsuits. Um, I will note, though, that if you ask the research community whether the supply of cannabis has like has improved drastically, I mean, I know that Sue, Dr. Sisley, is offering up cannabis for researchers, but it hasn't gotten that much better. And the reason why is the law was is just one part of this problem. The other part is like honestly, like the MSOs and like the industry, they they don't appear to be too interested in researching cannabis. And none of these operations are like well-funded. And so it wasn't just the NIDA monopoly. Like there are researchers interested in studying and certainly Dr. Sisley is one of them, but there are researchers at a lot of institutions that are interested in studying real world cannabis. The cannabis folks are in fact using 
but it doesn't seem like that's where the, the dollars are interested in doing that, right? Like that's, and that's a problem because research costs money. Like you can grow as much cannabis as you want, but you, you know, you have to pay for it. And that doesn't seem to be out there. Seems like there's a cat and mouse game going on, right? People are, are fighting for their lives and, and cash being such a premium asset that they need to, in order to fund their own businesses, while research would be something that they'd love to have. It's more of like, a, it's nice to have and we'll put it on the bucket for another time. I think that's that's one aspect of it. And, and there's certainly, I think the industry is focused on immediate cash flow. And again, you know, throw 280 out there again. But like, because, yeah, I mean, throw that out there as well again. But but I also think that the cannabis industry likes doing business the way it's doing it and doesn't want to move into the FDA approved lane and doesn't want it. I mean, if you're not, if you're a business and you don't want to get an FDA approved product, why are you going to pay for research? Um, and so that's, that's a totally rational thing to want, but it's, Something I think that the, both the government and everyone else needs to realize because it doesn't matter what you do with the laws. The cannabis research could be, there could be no restrictions on cannabis. If there's no economic incentive to do the research, it's still not going to happen. So um, certainly from a, an academic standpoint, and, and a lot of folks are also interested in safety research, not really looking to make a product. I mean, loosening the research restrictions is absolutely essential. But let's be clear, like the cannabis research situation, you know, is lagging still far behind psychedelics because folks are interested in producing an FDA approved psychedelic. But I'm happy to dive deep into this. There are other problems with cannabis research, which is you know, the FDA is not very friendly to the idea of smoking cannabis. And so if you want to make a cannabis tincture of some kind, you know, I'm sure you could do the clinical trials and everything, but a lot of the way people consume cannabis is smoking or vaping. And that's just a much harder sell with the FDA to even get the clinical trials off the ground, which I'm sure a lot of cannabis companies and, and the money in cannabis realizes. And so it's entirely rational that they don't want to fund that research. And that that's that's kind of shame on the FDA, in my view, because it's like, I don't understand why people are not, why why anyone would not want people to research cannabis the way it is in fact used by folks today right like is that the best way to design a clinical trial smoking a blunt probably not but that is the way a lot of people use cannabis medically in fact so if i if it were me i would want someone to study it but it's very hard to get that through if you were the Um, fda what would you say is the reason why you you wouldn't want to study it with smoking if ever like take the other side smoking smoking is very damaging to your lung tissue and causes cancer because you're inhaling free radicals right so for like sh- for sure yeah. but if that's the majority way it's consumed exactly like Matt was saying I'd like to at least do the study to understand kind of like the aspects like right you need that you need the research in order to back up those claims sure we all understand those things but at least doing the research would then validate those claims at least in my opinion. I think you can do the research you just can't do it as a um you know, as part of an IND or like investigational drug application, they're like, well, we're not, you know, again, my response is, okay, fine, but this is still how people use it, right? I mean, it's, it's a lot like the whole like vaping and, and tobacco thing, but like, well, vaping is bad for X, Y, and Z, but is that really the question we should be asking? Should we be asking, is vaping better than smoking a combustible? And I haven't spent a lot of time investigating that issue, but I know there's a lot of people talking about the different sort of the flavored vapes and the, you know, whatever. And I think those are like valid concerns, but at the same time, like, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, I think that really we should be focused on is the combustible versus vaping. And so with cannabis, again, I get to, well, would you rather have like an FD, like a product that's like, you know, standardized or like, you know, Alcohol is not good for you, really, no matter how it is. But we still have like beer that's relatively like standardized or whatnot because we don't want to be necessarily drinking moonshine, watered down moonshine or whatever. So I think that's just kind of short sighted to to not like. I'm fine with products that are bad for you as long as the the risks are fully disclosed. And if someone wants to sell a cannabis product, as long as that's sort of fully disclosed, or like combusting this, you know, et cetera. So. I don't know if I'm making any sense here, but... Do you think it could be because, like, they're afraid of kind of what happened to the tobacco industry, right? I mean, essentially, cannabis is a commodity and it's an agricultural product, right? And the biggest thing that happened to the tobacco industry is that people started, like, 
doing a lot of this research once people got sick 50 years later, right? And then it kind of was a really big hammer that came down on the tobacco space. And as cannabis is in its infancy, do you think a lot of these potential executives are looking at it as like, hey, we don't want to fund this research because cannabis already has enough challenges ahead of it right now for federal legalization, that if we fund this research that potentially and it discloses that smoking cannabis does cause XYZ, that it could be a harder track to federal legalization of a new agricultural commodity product. I mean, I guess that's possible, though. Isn't that what people are already saying? I mean, you kind of that that's already on the prohibition side of the debate. They're already saying like saying this as if it were true. I don't know. I mean, it, it's but I, I guess that's right. Although I, it, from a human perspective, I've never really found the idea of well, we don't want to research this because we don't want to know the truth to be a particularly <laughs> persuasive reason not to do something. I mean, it's that basically says it all, right? Like, <laughs> it does. I, I got, I'll take the other side. I'm wondering if the pharmaceutical industry and the tobacco industry is not interested in some of these advancements so that they can keep it the way it is, so that they can keep some of their moats because. If the cannabis industry does end up having some of these medicinal benefits, like we all hope, now we're going to have a different conversation where, right, like how how that works, how the pharmaceutical industry adapts, how they protect their moats, and how that goes up. That's a totally valid point. Uh, although I, I want to take issue with you say if it has medicinal benefits, and I, you know, this is something that that I always get frustrated about because it's like it obviously has medicinal benefits, like. You know, as a culture, I think we've become addicted to this safety and efficacy thing. And a lot of people are like, well, it hasn't been proven to be safe and efficacious. It's like, no, but we have like thousands and thousands of anecdotes every day. And, you know, in, in high school, it was I was learned that there are like different ways of like knowing things. And it's like, you know, one bucket is like faith. Okay, well, that let's not operate on faith. But legitimately, like you get to a point where you have enough anecdotes where you don't need to actually do double-blind placebo studies to know that something is medically like, useful and medically effective. And so, like, I honestly do not believe there is a good faith debate that that cannabis, at least administered in some form, I'm not talking, is is good for cancer patients who are who have a lot of pain or you know, can't. I mean, why why are we even having this debate? And 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 the answer is because I think as a culture we've fixated on safety and efficacy through the double-blind scientific process is the only way you can know something. This is the only way you can know. And it's like, this this, this isn't how like even humans behave on like a daily basis. Like I don't go around asking people like, well, did you do a double-blind experiment? You can't really know that until you did, you know? And and, and it's, it's, it's just insane. It's absolutely insane. I mean, so it's like, you know, cannabis is medically useful. And and for that reason, I think most of this country has approved medical marijuana. But but the reason I, I'm getting so worried up about this is this is why cannabis was left on Schedule One for so long, is because the federal government would say, well, we can't know that this is actually medically useful until you show us safety and efficacy gold standard. And it's just like, holy crap! Like you know what in what universe is like are you living? Like is cannabis like useful for like? Some of like sciatica, I don't know, but like, is it medically useful for a lot of things? Like, yeah, it's obvious. Like, let's, you know, let's move past that. So when you're having the conversations with the DEA or the FDA, with other lawmakers about these type of, of topics, are they dismissive of your response? Are they accepting and saying, hey, this is not how it works? Like, what is, how does that work? Oh, well, the, the DEA doesn't want to hear. I mean, the DEA, I mean, what's underlies sort of, Schedule one to this to this day is interpreting the words currently accepted medical use to basically mean FDA approval. It's this five part test that is safety, efficacy, well recognized by expert. Basically, everything you would have to do to get approval of a drug from the FDA is how they interpret the phrase. I'm in court right now, kind of trying to, you know, do and and they're not bending and. I don't think the FDA will either. I mean, the FDA is very much used to a pure pharmaceutical model and at least outwardly hostile to cannabis. Like, look look at what they just did with sort of the CBD regulation. They just punted and then said, like, well, CBD hasn't been approved. And 
So that that's where we are. So I don't think there's a friendly audience in government to, to these type of arguments, or at least not yet. I don't see any bending on the federal government on this issue. It sounds like you guys are playing like a cat and mouse game, it seems like. Uh, I was listening to you speak psychedelic science conference and you kind of were going through some of the cat and mouse games in terms of like them not giving a final conclusion on a lawsuit. And then you're like, well, we can't move forward until you find out, have a final conclusion. So you can kind of walk us through some of those cat and mouse games that you guys are forced to play just to try to move this issue forward. Yeah, one of the sort of legal strategies that's used, and it's not just by DEA, but by federal agencies a lot, is they ask courts, they, they say there's no jurisdiction, there's no, it's called standing, meaning the person before the court does not have a vested interest in its outcome. If a court dismisses a case for standing, or in one of my cases, it was lack of final agency action, one of it's called didn't exhaust administrative remedies. Exhaustion means you have to go to the agency and have the agency look at your issue and make a decision before you can go to court. If you don't check off all of these, what we'll call procedural boxes, the court never reaches the merits. They never actually like address your complaint. And so the government, like there's like a lot of times, like, like in, in, in the third Sicily case, like we had fantastic arguments on the merits. Our merits arguments were like really great, but we had a, a procedural problem and we thought we thought we had arguments around it, but we lost on that procedural problem. And so if you lose on the procedure, the court basically says, I have no power to tell you who's right or wrong, and you just get thrown out of court. And so that same thing happened in this this case, this Ames psilocybin rescheduling case, where we went to court and the court said, there's no final agency action here, meaning that the agency hadn't reached a final decision on the question we posed it, and so you can't go to court. The court only can rule on a final agency action, not like intermediate agency actions. So what did we do? We went back and we submitted a, uh, we submitted multiple petitions to the agency, and we actually got a prompt response. But but in the past, if you submit things, it, it would take them like years. So. The agency, like, you know, in normal life, if you submit something to like, you know, uh, let's say you turn in a final exam to a professor, right? You would expect you would get your grade back in like, what, a month? Reasonable time. Yeah, a reasonable time. That's actually the language that's used under the APA. So reasonable time. Certainly, if you're like in school, a reasonable time is not going to be like next year. Like you have to get your grades before that, right? But in under the APA and in administrative law, reasonable time is like two years, maybe a little bit more. So the DEA has historically taken like years to process these these petitions. And this is how our government works. It's not just the DEA. And it's you can't even say the DEA is acting in bad faith. But you know, if this is your process of your well. You can't say it for this reason alone, but I'm just saying like things take a long time in the government and courts are very unwilling to stick it to them, at least not the first time around. And I think it's really important to understand this paradigm because a lot of people in cannabis and psychedelic, they want immediate, you want immediate results. And there's a difference between getting immediate results, but not actually fixing the problem and being careful and deliberate and persistent and strategic and actually like doing things the right way and iron, like ironing out the kinks. And I think this is kind of ideologically, there's a very you know, different type of, of approach. And a lot of the problems I think that we are seeing today with cannabis are because people wanted, people moved farther. And this is what I said at Psychedelic Science is people pushed, they, they were seeing progress on the state front and just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and the federal never moved. And so, the problems you're seeing today are the divide between the state and the federal, where the state reform has gone so far. There's regulatory structures, the business got built up, and the federal never went anywhere. And so because federal and state law have to like jive together, it actually, in a lot of respects, made the problems worse because instead of both being on the same page with prohibition, now you've got basically all the way on one and federal government is all the way here. And a lot of the debates that we see today are just people trying to figure out where in the middle you want to land. Like, in other words, a lot of people want the federal to go all the way to where the state is, and a lot of people want it to fall short a little bit. So one of the ways I, I say, like, 
we should not be doing the same thing with psychedelics. I'm not saying the state reform stuff should stop. It should continue, but it should be moving in concert with the federal, or at least they should be keeping neck and neck a little bit because we do not want to recreate what's going on with cannabis. Does that mean that someone like yourself has to take the slow, methodical approach to iron out all the kinks? Or is there another tactic? Because who or how would someone help to align those two, especially given the way you just described how the government works? Well, I think we need to press on the federal as vigorously as we're pressing on the state, right? In other words, like, let's not take an attitude of, well, the federal government, like, a lot of people don't think it's possible to get anything done at the federal level. And so they just don't even bother and they don't even try. I'm not sure where this necessarily came from, but we need to start pushing at the federal level now, today, in, but in a strategic way. So how, like, what would you do or what would you suggest? Well, I I think it's some of the stuff I'm doing and some of the stuff other folks are doing, which is, look, we're not trying to get the federal government to legalize psilocybin overnight. But certainly, I think that, and this appeals to a lot of lawmakers, is, okay, well, but what about rescheduling psilocybin modestly so that terminally ill folks and folks who have exhausted all their treatments can get access to this stuff today instead of, having to wait for the FDA approval process to go go all the way through. I'm not sure why anyone would be opposed to that. And as it turns out, you know, I think that there are a lot of supporters on, on the Hill. And I don't think anyone's opposed to it. I know there are, there are members who are probably like, this isn't going to be the Hill they want to die on and they're not going to sponsor it. And that's totally fine. That's how a democracy works. Like, you don't find issues where everyone is willing to jump in line. But the incremental approach could work on the federal side and then the state side. Yeah, you continue doing what you're doing. But if you do that, then the federal is not, there's not this huge gap, right? I mean, that to me was the biggest problem with cannabis was, you know, and when the federal government started getting involved, it was always done on like the executive, like non-prosecution side. And, and there's no bad faith in the way it was done. It was very much an experiment. But the point is, it was an experiment, and we should learn from that experiment, and we should start working on trying to reform laws at the federal level and make sure that the policies, the federal government, it's not just like, well, we're just going to sit on the sidelines while everything you know goes down, and but you know we're going to let the IRS do 280 anyway. Like you know what I'm saying? Like cannabis taught us something, so let's let's internalize those lessons. I wonder if it goes back to like a mindset of people being like, yeah, there's no way that I personally as a company can make a difference. But I think the mindset that you brought to the table with Dr. Sicily and some of those other efforts, which is like, this is wrong. And because this is wrong, I am going to take steps and actions to fix this. Yeah, not just that. But, you know, one one of the frustrating things I have with that type of attitude is I don't even know if the industry and the companies even realize why they have the problems that they have. I mean, it, it's so easy to say, oh, well, it's 280E, right? But why do we even have 280E? Well, because in 1982 or 1981, there was a case where it was a, I forget the name of the case, but it was a tax court case where some drug dealer took a, a took income tax deductions for you know ordinary business expenses. And Congress was outraged in 1982 at the height of the war on drugs under the Reagan administration. And there was a national drug policy policy to, you know, crack down on this. And so Congress was like, you know, that's a really stupid outcome. And guess what? It was a really stupid outcome. Um, And so they wrote a statute which proves tied to drug trafficking. If you don't see 280E as part of a bigger like war on drugs like thing, then you are missing the big picture. And if you're missing the big picture, what you, you start when you look at the big picture, what you start to realize is it's kind of like a Jenga tower or like a really intricate like puzzle where all of these things are connected. And so you don't like taking apart one part of the puzzle actually starts to shift things and move things, even even issues that don't immediately relate to you. One thing I've always gotten at is like federal drug possession, simple possession. It's, it's an issue that affects, appears to affect almost no one because the federal government doesn't go around arresting people for simple possession. But it really matters for a lot of things. A lot of times, a lot of times it comes up in like, immigration or, um, you know, public housing. And these are the type of issues that I think that if the industry actually wanted to fix the swamp that they built their castles on, they would start attacking 
these types of cases, the same way the NRA or the gun lobby, anytime anything infringes on a gun right, no matter what, they're there, right? It's because it's a system and you have to deconstruct the system. What I see is, is if it's not related to cash flow, nobody cares. And that's why you're in the problem. That, that's why you're here. That's how you got here. Just because if that's your mindset, then you're not doing anything to, to fix the overall system. And that's it. And it, it seemed, it's, it's apparent to me, but it doesn't seem to be apparent to anyone else. I mean, so is it like rescheduling all of these chemicals, right? To like a Schedule 2 or something, right? And you think that might be the first step? Or is it like decriminalization? Like, what do you think is like the, the low-hanging fruit? So decriminalization is, I think, is really important. I do think that... Because like, then that addresses possession, right? Because technically, as long as you're not selling it and doing a business, right? Right. And it's something people can get around and get behind because among other things, like, I think that drug dealers probably shouldn't be able to, you know, I'm, I'm not in favor of drug dealing. I, in fact, I was just in San Francisco recently and I don't know, like I, I have pretty libertarian views on, on drug use, but man, that kind of jarred me. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been there recently. Yeah, it's not a great place to hang out. It's not. And it makes you think about some things, but you know, it, yeah, it's the low, it's the low hanging fruit, simple, simple possession. You know, it's, 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 uh, the administration talks about people should not go to jail for using drugs. They should go into treatment. Well, why, why don't we get rid of simple possession? Yeah. Rescheduling to schedule two. I mean, there's not that much difference between schedules two through five. I mean, two and three, there's a, there's a lot of regulatory restrictions, but you know, that would help us with the research if we got a lot of compounds to schedule two. In fact, we don't really need a schedule one, right? Like, why do we even have a schedule one moving? At some point, we want to maybe move the people who administrated the schedules from DEA over to FDA. Maybe we want to tackle civil forfeiture law. I mean, there's a drug industrial complex here and cannabis industry and to some extent, the psychedelics industry are, are on the losing end of that. And it's a complex. It's just a big complex. So yeah, take away the low hanging fruit, start chipping away at it. And maybe people will realize, hey, you know, you know, a lot of people are like, well, if we get rid of X, Y, and Z, like, you know, people will, drugs will flood everywhere. And it's like, well, maybe if you get rid of X, Y, and Z and drugs don't flood everywhere, you can start getting rid of A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Like, in other words, it's, it's that, that's, that's my point is you build momentum and you realize, oh, hey, the sky's not going to fall if we get rid of simple possession. Oh, the sky's not going to fall if things move to schedule two. And you can continue with the incremental approach and you just keep taking issues as they come. Um, and, and, you know, just to address the prohibitionist sort of aspect of this, which is like, oh, you're just trying to get to full-scale legalization. No, maybe that's not the end objective. It's not to get to full-scale legalization. But maybe sort of, I've never really understood why well, we've got the alcohol, tobacco, fire, like ATF, which does like large-scale trafficking of things like, why doesn't the federal government do large-scale trafficking and state governments do like everything else? I mean, why why did the war on drugs become this like federal like effort? I know the answer to this question, but like, you know, just philosophically, like, you know, I, I don't know why, why, you know, we should be worried about large-scale trafficking at the federal level and at the state level that, you know, do the smaller level stuff. I mean, that if we ever got drug policy like aligned and that sort of bad idea, I think we'd be in a pretty good place. I just don't ever see that happening. And I hate to even say that, but it just seems like there's too many forces moving against each other, too many interests not aligned in order to have that happen, as plus having not a lot of rational people who can think logically, like you just shared. I agree. It is unlikely to happen. And there are other forces too, of course, like, you know, pharmaceutical lobby and so on and so Big forth. Donors. So, yeah, donors and whatnot. But it, it's, yeah, I, I think it's unlikely to happen. I agree. And and from what I've observed is the the drug policy movement, the cannabis movement, the psychedelics movement is not the same as the civil rights movement and is not the same as like the gender rights movement. It's not even the same as the gun lobby or the other sort of movements um, where people are on the same page. It's, people aren't. So true or false, the DEA is an agency. True. DEA is an agency. Do you want to elaborate a little bit? I assume you're talking about the lawsuit I'm involved in where I am saying the DA is an agency and the government's saying it's not an agency. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I give you the technical legal arguments. I mean, I think everyone would think 
something that has a billion billions of dollars in appropriations headed by an administrator and has you know tons of employees in like different cities and different countries as an agency seems odd that it wouldn't be but what the department of justice is saying is that well the dea is a component of doj and therefore is not an agency you know i I don't comment on pending litigation usually so i'm not really saying anything beyond what's in the briefs but i hope the court reaches a you know reaches a decision in my favor but i'm sure it will review the arguments and figure out which one is correct that's That's a good answer really well stated So let's go back to the AIM Institute, the case versus Merrick Garland. Can you kind of set up like the high-level overview and then we can kind of work through some of the details? Yeah, and again, it's pending litigation. I don't comment on it, I, I, but I can give background. I mean, the, the AIMS is, is the client here is, is a doctor. He's looking to use psilocybin or right to try or you know, compassionate use type purposes um, based on the successful clinical trials, phase ones and twos, the breakthrough therapy designation for psilocybin. It's got terminal patients and, you know, asking the DA, well, how do we get this done? And, you know, we first, we asked for an exception and then the DA kind of sent us a couple letters saying, well, we don't really have authority to do that. We went to court. The court said no final agency action. So then what we did was we submitted rather than ask DA, how do we do this? We sent them a petition for an actual exception, and they denied that petition, um, saying that they don't have authority um, to do it. This is the very same thing they said the first time around, but this time it was in a denial, so it was a final agency action. And so we took an appeal of that, but at the same time, we submitted a petition to reschedule psilocybin um, based on, in part, on something the government said, which was, well, if they think it should be able to be available for medical use, they should submit a rescheduling petition. So we did that. That's exactly what we did. And um, and they denied that petition as well. And so we took an appeal of that. And so we are now um, getting ready to file a brief in that case, a reply brief, explaining why our petition was uh, wrongly denied by the agency. And it largely comes down to a dispute of what the words currently accepted medical use with severe restrictions means. That's kind of what we're fighting over. And we think we have good arguments and we'll see, we'll see what the court does. One thing I will note is there is no, we were talking before about like the procedural and the substantive and whatnot. And by and large, there's no, there's no procedural obstacle. I think we were, we're all on the same page that we have standing and that there's a final agency action. But the, the DEA did ask in their, they didn't ask, but they suggested in their answering brief that the court should do what's called a voluntary remand. So add that to the stack of there's standing, there's exhaustion, there's final agency action, and now there's a voluntary remand, which is something an agency does when they want to reconsider the decision that they reached. And there are various reasons why we do not think that the court should grant the agency a voluntary remand. But the one thing I'll say is a voluntary remand is yet another instance where the court does not make a ruling on the merits questions in the case. And so one of the things we're challenging is the agency's standard for that it's applying to these petitions. And what DEA is saying is, we want to take this back. And so, you know, we're contesting that. Um, And I think, again, the court will reach uh, it will review the arguments. And I have full confidence that we'll decide which is the better one. So all of this is just so a doctor can try to help patients that are terminally ill that have exhausted all other means of treatment, correct? That's correct. And, and I think, wow. you know, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I think one of the, that that's exactly right. Your reaction is exactly one of the reasons why we're litigating this case is this is kind of crazy, right? Right. Like, like, Crazy. You know, and 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 it, it not only can't be done, but if we do end up winning, like what did we have to do to get that? And that's the type of stuff that these are the types of narratives that I think we need to be we need to be front and center to illustrate the problems with the system, right? And and the, the stories are never going the, the compelling ones, the moving ones are never going to be the wow, our tax bill is really high. Like that's just not a moving story. Like nobody gives a shit. But I would mention 280E is very much an equity and access issue. I think this is something that that really, I really want to get across, which is it's true that the main beneficiaries of 280E may turn out to be multi-state operators and whatnot, 
but I've always kind of said this is with respect to pharma as well, which is, you know, I, I, I'm not actually against big pharma. I actually think big pharma makes a lot of great products. I think that a lot of people that, okay, there's abuse in the patent system, but you, but you also have to realize that like they do R&D, it's extraordinarily expensive. And for every drug that gets through the FDA approval process, there are a hundred that don't. So that product is subsidizing like all the other research. So it's just a far more complicated picture and big pharma is not always out. It's not a categorically evil thing. In fact, they're really effective at what they do. I mean, you almost have to respect it. I do respect it. And with respect to 2AE, I never find it to be a persuasive argument where like, well, big pharma is going to be the number one beneficiary of that. And I'm like, okay, maybe that's right. But isn't the question as a society as a whole in other words, there's a difference between big pharma benefiting at the expense of the public and everyone benefiting from something. Sometimes it's like big pharma and we all benefit. And that's that's the same way I feel about 280E, right? Okay, so even if the MSOs are the primary beneficiary of 280E, and I'm not sure that's true, in fact, but let's say that's true. But isn't it true that we all generally benefit more, right? Like, isn't that the point? Like, okay, so the MSOs are the primary beneficiaries, but also... You know, mom and pop cannabis stores, craft cannabis stores that really can't vertically integrate and shift costs of goods sold across their balance sheets. So, you know, aren't those businesses also benefiting from this? And by the way, if prices can come down, doesn't that make cannabis more accessible for people? Because maybe cannabis companies can actually can give workers like better benefits because now they can deduct them, right? Like health insurance, not a deductible thing. If you can give health insurance like to your to your retail workers and so then you're creating retail worker jobs for like like basically like decent like blue collar I mean so so I want to be clear like 280E is very much a social justice issue. And so it really falls on deaf ears, at least with me, when people are like, well, this is just a handout to the the MSOs and doesn't do anything to address social justice and equity issues. I'm like, no, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. And maybe it doesn't address it to the degree that you want. And that's a debate that's worth having. But do not say that this does not address social justice issues. It absolutely does. 100% agree. And I, I, my biggest fear is that if 2E continues, and like we're seeing out in California, we could be facing an extinction event where there's a domino effect and a lot of companies fall just victim to the casualties of kind of like a, a surrounding environment. And then I wonder, as you've seen people stop paying their taxes, like at what point does a conversation on the Hill happen where they're like, all right, like now we've got a real problem. We've got a lot of companies that are in some serious debt. Do we do this? Like, how do you see that working? I don't see that working. And those types of events have like ripple effects, right? Like yeah. a lot of people's livelihoods are at stake. A lot of people's livelihoods are at stake. And one person not meeting their debt obligations causes someone else not to get their money, causes someone else not to get their money. I mean, it, it's a really, it's not something you want to see. By the way, I'm not a big fan of bailouts. I, I don't believe in too big to fail, but it's still not something you want to see. That illustrates the point precisely, Brian, what you just said, which is like, the alternative to fixing this problem is so I don't find it persuasive that like just because the main beneficiaries are it is going to be an extinction level event. I mean you're you're already seeing it, right? Yeah. Like in California. Yeah, you're already seeing it. They're like, why do I get a license when I can just sell the product without a company and now we're back in the black market? You know what I mean? Yeah. And and look, maybe maybe I'm maybe it's a pipe dream that I have, but like you can homebrew beer. Or you could buy beer at the store and the beer industry does just fine. Now imagine if the, the beer industry, as opposed to the homebrew, imagine if the beer industry had to pay 280E taxes, right? People buy beer at the store because it's cheaper to do that than it is to homebrew. You know, Budweiser still is a business because, you know, craft breweries are great, but, you know, maybe they, they charge a little more for beer. I mean, that's what I would like to see. I'd like to see a cannabis industry where they're, you know, there's commoditized, like, like, cheap cannabis, there's fancy cannabis, there's here's how you can home grow cannabis if you want, and let the economic sort of chips fall where they are free of these like regulations that basically artificially sort of tilt towards certain models and away from others. I, I'm a big free market guy. So in your opinion, which event happens first? And if you could put these in an order, the removal of 280E, federal legalization, or interstate commerce? Well, the interstate commerce thing is, is, I don't know, it's kind of a questionable thing. It's, it's never been clear to me why people are sort of think there's no interstate commerce. Although I will say that there's an interesting kind of, if it gets rescheduled 
there's an interesting sort of idea of, well, it's not FDA approved. So the FDA's jurisdiction is interstate, right? And it has liberally interpreted what it means to be interstate. It just means if one ingredient passes from one state to another. But you could you could theoretically operate a cannabis cafe that was entirely interstate and therefore outside the jurisdiction of the FDA. Entirely, right? You just you grow on site, you buy your joint, you smoke it on site. You know, it's a little bit of the Amsterdam model. And you could do that and it would be outside the FDA's jurisdiction. I think that's actually entirely possible and it would be kind of cool. But certainly the Controlled Substances Act isn't isn't important. Like there's nothing in the CSA that says like you can't go like interstate or whatever. And I'm not really sure where that came from. Maybe maybe I missed something, but um, I think the 280 is going to be the first thing to give. I, I I think that I know that the president is under you know there's a, a scheduling review that is is happening, and I think cannabis is going to be rescheduled. And if it gets put in three or below, then the 280 problem just completely disappears. What's your guess? Give me three or below. I don't think they're going to leave it. I don't think so. I think the industry is too big right now. They got to do something, and it could, I, it could it could fail. I mean, the industry could fail. Yeah, I mean, if you see some of these oh, numbers, like yeah. the way we're continuing, it is not good. And I think the one thing that no one really wants to speak about is sure, MSOs are the ones that benefit, but they're also the ones where if they go down, it will be a catastrophic kind of ripple effect because they are the core infrastructure in some of those states for medicinal and for recreational. Yeah, and it's the ripple effect too, right? Like there's a lot of people that have poured a lot of money, like private money into these organizations and they're utilizing their shares as assets on their balance sheet, right? So like there's a lot of that that's going to go on. I mean, I think the top 10 owe like 800 million, maybe even a billion now in back taxes. Yeah, and and, the ans- and and don't forget the ancillaries, right? Which is there's there's an entire like group of folks that depend on the MSOs to the, the testing labs and, and all sorts of other folks. And maybe someone wants the cannabis industry to go... But if you don't want the cannabis industry to go up and smoke, like you're not rooting against the MSO. That's what I, again, I find that puzzling. I mean, I wouldn't want the MSOs to benefit necessarily at the expense of everyone else, but that that is absolutely not what's going on. I mean, it, it's getting rid of 280E is, is, I think, something that lifts the, the tide for everyone. The only only folks that don't benefit from that is the IRS. But they did say that they don't want to be paid, I think, in cash, right? Yeah. So lightly switching gears, are we facing a potential IP battle in psychedelics or in cannabis space, let's say now or in the future? I mean, I, IP battle, you know, I, I'm not sure. I mean, a lot of the IP in psychedelics is directed to the FDA drug development process, which is kind of its own sort of species of it's like pharma, that's more pharma oriented. Yeah, I don't, I don't see any IP battle. I mean, I don't, in cannabis, there hasn't really been that much. Um, and I guess the question, right, is, in the moment this all becomes legalized, is there going to be like a bunch of IP wars? I don't know. It's an interesting question. I mean, you know, there's so many different varietals of cannabis and the smoking cannabis has been around forever. It just seems kind of like, I don't know, it doesn't doesn't seem like there's going to be IP battles, but maybe there's something I don't know about. I mean, not, not any more than any other industry, right? Like, you know, you don't see IP battles in the tomato industry, for example. So it's not saying that people won't have patents and they won't be infringed. I'm sure there's going to be like, you know, certain manufacturing techniques or whatever. It's not going to be like... No fault of trade secrets, right? Kind of trade secret situation. Yeah, trade secrets. But again, like not, you know, not any different than any other sort of area. Like, but yeah, I think I think with legalization at the federal level, you, you'll start to see more lawsuits, if only because more lawyers will be comfortable engaging. And the more money there is, the more lawsuits there tends to be. So as soon as soon as you sort of free up the commerce and free up the money, you're going to free up the disputes about the money. I mean, I don't know if I were to, at this point, like, you know, I don't even know if you, if you sued someone, if they would be able to fulfill a judgment, right? Right. The, at least in federal court, right? Yeah. Well, in federal, in a federal court, might just they won't even hear it. Yeah. They might, they might not just, yeah, exactly. They might just say like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Cannabis is illegal. Cannabis <laughs> is illegal. <laughs> for me. Yeah. So Matt, before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? I think the biggest thing, the biggest contributor to my success, uh, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, is I, I trained to become a lawyer, not a cannabis lawyer, not a psychedelics lawyer. I just learned how to practice law. I learned basic skills like reading, writing, 
thinking critically, like, you know, but as a lawyer, like as a lawyer, and I trained to become an IP lawyer, and I trained on like, big high stakes commercial cases. And I, I've developed my deposition skills, I, I, I became a good lawyer before I ever moved into this space with any sort of seriousness. And I think I became a better lawyer in this space for that because those skills, they're the same skills you would need to take to anything. And in fact, like the area of law, I end up applying the most. I mean, sure, I deal with the Controlled Substances Act a lot, but it's really administrative law. And there's tons of administrative law out there. And so I think that the, the advice I would give is a recommendation is think sort of broadly and think about skill, developing skills as opposed to substantive knowledge about, you know, the industry or whatever, which is important. But, you know, if you want to be a lawyer, learn how to do the law and learn it sort of in a more general sense and then kind of drill down. And I think a lot of folks nowadays are kind of jumping right into cannabis law. I think that's one way you can do it, but it's uh, not the way I did it. And I'm glad I didn't do it that way. Great advice. All right. Prediction time. Matt, hindsight is 2020. If you could go back and do things differently, what would you do to alleviate the issues to set up the cannabis industry to thrive? I think that one one of the things I would do is I would have um, I would have made a harder push on medical a little bit sooner at the federal level. I think that the recreational was and still is going to be a hard sell, and I think that really focusing on medical at the federal level could have basically helped take down a lot of the barriers that REC is even facing right now. And I think that the medical was pushed very hard and very successfully in the states. And that wreck came on right behind it. And we never even started with medical at the federal level. It just was medical state level, wreck, wreck state level. And we built this entire industry. And there was never, I almost wonder if something like banking or something could have gotten done with medical before you know, at the federal level. The medical narrative just works a lot better at the federal level. And now we're at the point where you can't even do medical at the federal level because everyone's just like, well, you just want it for rec. So I could go back and do it differently if I had all that's I would have sort of encouraged pressing at the federal level on the medical before the rec movement kind of took off. Ellen. I would agree. And I think that the only thing I would add is that I think that when GW Pharma went through and got their Epidiolex rescheduled. Right. I think that there was an opportunity to kind of really push for both THC because THC is in, in epidiolex, right? To push for both of those compounds themselves to actually be rescheduled. And I think that it could have been just a situation where GW kind of just maybe ran out of gas, right? They sold shortly after to, to Jazz, I think, right? So I think it could have been maybe they ran out of money or just steam. And it was kind of like, hey, we've been fighting this prohibition battle for 60 years, right, since the war on drug really began. And it was just like a, a W for them. And they're like, hey, we're just going to take our win and kind of walk away. Um, when I think they a little more effort during that time, especially it was like right, right, right around 2018, right? Canada had legalized. Right? There was a lot of momentum behind it, with the farm bill and stuff. And I think that it kind of just pittered out, right? So I, I agree with everything that you said, Matt. What do you think, Brian? I think what Matt said earlier about like pushing back and, and checking the government would have been a critical feature to institute er, a little earlier on so that we didn't have this compounding problem of as more states came online, we'd have this critical issue. And I think and hope that eventually we can figure out banking, we can figure out 2ED because it's almost nonsense at this point, right? We're, we're setting all these restrictions up, yet we, we want this industry to work. Everyone can agree. We all can agree that there are med- medical benefits. But at the same time, we're not doing anything logically in order to alleviate these challenges, which is hindering the operators, which is hindering the research. But also at the same time, we're saying, hey, like, just figure it out on your side. We'll make a decision. We'll make a decision. And I think that type of reactive mindset is one that's gotten ourselves into a really bad problem, that one that continues to compound the wrong way. I totally agree with that. Absolutely. So, Matt, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to read on drugs and potentially have you represent them. Where can they find you? So I write at ondrugs.substack.com. And if someone is looking for representation, I'm an okay lawyer. I've had, had some pretty good successes. Um, I, my, I practice at Yetter Coleman. My email is mzorn at yettercoleman.com. And um, I do IP litigation, but I also do contract litigation. I do 
basically any type of business litigation. I know how to do it. And um, I'm pretty good, especially when I'm against the government. Talking up those W's. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. This was fun, man. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.